0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Brussels sprouts I'm Andrea Kendall Taylor
1: and I'm Jim Townsend
0: and we're so glad you can join us today we're back with another edition of our rapid reactions to Russia's aggression against Ukraine, the United States has provided its written response to Russia and early Russian reactions convey Russian disappointment that the US did not address Moscow's main concern, namely the expansion east of NATO. And alongside the diplomatic track, the United States and its NATO allies have begun pursuing other courses of action, including decisions to put their military forces on standby and to send ships and fighter jets to reinforce Eastern Europe. Amid this flurry of activity, there has been a lack of clarity about the intentions behind these moves, and Russia for its part has claimed that such actions pose a threat to the country's security interest. So in order to set the record straight, about what all this really means and what it says about the trajectory of events we're really pleased today to welcome ben hodges to the podcast uh, welcome back
2: thank you guys very much for the privilege it's great to see i you. think
0: most listeners are familiar with ben but just very briefly a bit of bio he holds the pershing chair in strategic studies at the center for european policy analysis he previously served in the u.s army for 38 years completing his last assignment as Commander of U.S. Army Europe from 2014 to 2017. I think let's start with the basics here. Um, Tell us about the U.S. and NATO announcements. Um, What are they all about? And and, and, uh, importantly, what do they mean in practice?
2: Uh, First of all, I am really uh, pleased that Secretary Austin has made the decision to uh, put America's contribution to the NATO Response Force on a heightened uh, level of, of readiness. This, this is important for two reasons. One, obviously, the fact that the United States is leaning into this uh, with uh, combat capability to reassure our allies. It's being done through and with NATO, not as just a another unilateral US action. And this, I think the administration has really done a good job here of making sure that what we're doing is with our allies and in consultation, and of course, it takes all 30 nations for the NRF to be deployed. Um, so this this there are all kinds of good aspects to, to this and what it represents.
0: So do you, do you see this as a shift in the way the administration is thinking about this crisis? I mean what when when you heard the announcement, kind of what did that signal to you and perhaps the way that Washington is is seeing what's happening on the ground?
2: Well, Andrea, the, the best thing about all this, is that not only is the um, uh, administration continuing this uh, terrific uh, diplomatic effort, I mean, like nothing I've seen since 1995 in the Dayton Peace Accord have I seen such a comprehensive diplomatic effort, but we also are correcting what I think was an earlier error of focusing just on punishment. Uh, you know, uh, deterrence through threat of punishment, which means after the fact, which means deterrence failed, and then you hope that you can keep everybody on side to follow through with these um, uh, sanctions like you've never seen before. Um, that, that's, that to me is not so compelling, but it, it feels like now the administration has adjusted and has shifted to uh, active deterrence, deterrence through the demonstration of capability and will. So not only are we uh, providing uh, capability for Ukrainians to defend themselves? But the uh, alert of the NATO response force uh, that sends a real signal of capability and, of course, willpower.
1: Um, it's, if I could jump in real quick, Andrea, I, I, I know you have lots of questions. I can see the long list that you're waving around at me. But uh, just to, just to look at the, the military side of it, you know. Ben, you and I had to handle that aspect in 2014. And so it's an amazing deja vu all over again, if you will. Um, the French are going to be there. The French have the lead on the NATO response force uh, now, which is interesting to see how France will also uh, work with the NRF. But, you know, um, d- just let's this, this talk a little bit about the, the military aspects. Obviously, the NAC would have to vote uh, for, for SACUR to actually deploy the NRF. And to me, that's going to be a big deal for the NAC to actually reach a point where they're willing to do something they've not done before, which is to uh, authorize SACUR to deploy forces. But, but let's go back and look at the U.S. side. I understand that we've also augmented um, the NATO, uh, the um, you know NATO air policing. We've sent a couple of F-15s to Amari Base, I believe, in the Baltics, and I think we have sent some to Romania as well. Um, supplements. So this isn't a normal deployment. This is a supplement. There's also been talk about uh, for deploying some of that 8,500. Not yet, as you were saying. They've just had their readiness raised. But I read somewhere that they uh, that there's that it's not out of the question that we might for deploy some of them to Europe. That too would be a ratcheting up of uh, of the um, of of that part of the U.S. Uh, uh, strategy that's more military oriented. But I've also been given a question too. you know, we I've I've heard the 82nd and 101st might be where some of this 8500 would come from. Those forces are on. They're more ready than a lot of the other forces are. That's their job. Um, and some of the questions have been, well, if they don't go to the NRF, what would they do? Uh, and I said, well, that's a good question uh, that that unit size, 8500 uh, is to me a little awkward i i don't know uh, necessary and you don't want to split your your uh, mass up you know and you need to keep some cohesion so anyway let me after just rambling on like that let me ask you what's the what do you see in terms of the military moves that the us is signaling as we look at that 85 8500 coming out of the airborne uh, earmarked for the NRF, but uh, maybe some of them for deployed, and if the NRF isn't called up, maybe they're sent and they do something else. What goes through your mind about that kind of military moves? What are we signaling and how are we going to do it?
2: Well, what goes through my mind now is that uh, you asked me like 19 questions um, mixed mixed in there, so I'm going to do my best to uh, meet your standard. Um and, of course, uh, when I saw that the 101st was part of this, uh, I remembered what we always used to say at Fort Campbell, if you want it done, you give it to the 101. So, uh, and, of course, my friends in the 82nd Airborne Division would have a, a different version of that. Um, now, the 8500, of course, these are that's a total of different types. It's not one, uh, one unit. I mean, there are different pieces that the U.S. is responsible for providing. Um, I I don't know when they will come over, but for sure, uh, the the standard sort of thing in this case, and I'm sure General Cavoli and General Walters will have thought, have already been thinking about these things for a while. What do you do with these guys? You don't bring them all the way over and then have them sit in a hangar on their rucksack. They go train. Uh, They go uh, weapons firing, uh, all the normal kind of things, uh, getting acclimated to a a different environment. Um, And also... um, Preparation. I mean, these guys, these units, most of them would not have been training or doing things in Poland or Lithuania. Uh, in in most cases, some of them will have. So uh, it it gives the SAKUR flexibility. It gives them some options. And you you both of you guys will recall back in 2014, uh, my predecessor Don Campbell was able to put one company, a hundred paratroopers each. And Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, and, like, within about two or three days. they We flew right. them out, of, uh, Don flew them out of the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vicenza, and and they, just one company of American soldiers, and the impact that that had of, hey, the United States is here. We're, we're going to put our women and men on the ground right here. Right. And it had such a, a powerful effect. So I, that's why I think the numbers... Uh, are not as important as the capability and, uh, and the, the symbolism of we are, we're committed and, and our allies should feel comfortable about this. And of course, um, not everybody will agree with this, but we're, we've all been looking down at Ukraine. That, that's only one part of the whole thing. I, I think the president of the Russian Federation, um, if he thought he could get away with it, would have much bigger game in mind. He said, heck, if I'm rolling dice on this, I'm, I don't think the West is really going to respond. And so uh, there are potential for other things. There's a reason that our allies in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania and Poland and in Romania are scared. Right. Or, or let me say they're, they're focused. They're, they're concerned. And um, so I, I think this is the right thing to do. And, Jim, you made, a, a, of course, an important point right in the beginning. Um, if this is gonna happen, it's only gonna be because all 30 nations agreed to it. And uh, as both of you know from your own experiences, to get 30 nations to agree to really hard things uh, is tough. Yeah. Uh, I just got—I literally just got back from Berlin about an uh, hour and a half ago. I was in Berlin for the last two days. And uh, there's a lot of tension inside Berlin, of course, uh, inside this uh, coalition government, uh, more and more germans i think are coming to grips with the, the the fact that they've got to take on more responsibility i mean the the announcement of the five thousand helmets um has been mocked uh memes all over the place and i mean germans are embarrassed by it so um so germany will have a chance if i mean they would have to support the nrf uh, being uh, deployed and this is an opportunity for them to uh to demonstrate uh, willingness to uh, hold the Russians accountable,
1: and, and just to follow. Oh, oh, uh, well, just just to make a follow up statement, then, uh, Andrea, and that is, and also, of course, they run the battle group in Lithuania, the Germans. Right. So that's an opportunity too for them to send forces there. That that should be non controversial to just reinforce what they're already doing there in Lithuania.
2: Well, and of course, you know, there's going to be a refugee problem here um, if this happens. I, and obviously, I, I hope it doesn't, but I, I have a sense that it is going to happen. Uh, potentially, hundreds of thousands of refugees start heading west. Um, is the European Union ready to deal with that? Uh, you know, they were, they were very reluctant to get, in, and get involved when uh, all these uh, people from the Middle East that were decided to vacation in Belarus uh, and then started pushing against uh, Poland and Lithuania. The EU really did not want to get involved with that. Um, are they prepared for right. something on a much larger scale?
0: I want to pick up on a little bit on the why question, why we're doing it. And you made the you know very good point about how important it is to reassure allies and to really ensure that President Putin doesn't look to test any NATO member state. So that's a, a really important one. But what about inadvertent spillover? And so how concerned are you that there might be scenarios kind of stemming from Ukraine? And I guess you could think of different scenarios for how that could play out. Um, you know, if, in terms of planning, how do we need to think about that? Do, you know, how do, do these troops and if should we be pre-positioning more forces so that we have more of a kind of military firewall in place so that we are prepared to deal with ways that this could kind of inadvertently test NATO member states?
2: Um, great question, Andrea. I, I think that, um, more troops are, are not, well, look, first of all, I'm sure the John Cavoli and General Walters and all of them have, have been talking about what are the requirements back to the Pentagon and, and to the other nations. You know, Poland has a significant military. Um, Romania is growing there. We've got a lot of capability there already, not to mention the 30,000 or so U.S. Army that live in Europe, and then the five to 8,000 that are rotational forces that are there. So there's a lot of capability that's there. Uh, I like to think in terms of what capabilities do we need, and air defense would be at the top of my list. Uh, we do not have enough um, air and missile defense capability in Europe to, candidly, to do more than protect Ramstein Air Base. Right. So. Uh, I mean, that's it. And so who's protecting all the other seaports and airports around Europe? This is where I think Germany and the Netherlands should be doing so much more. They should be the kind of the framework nation for that mission uh, in the Baltic region. Um, And it's not just about Patriot or whatever NASAMs. It's also about air forces and and other capabilities that that are uh, required. So that's, um, when you talk about spillover, um, that's one of the areas, I think, where you could have aircraft, um, you know, uh, Russian aircraft ending up over Moldova and then Romania, for example, uh, or um, other places in the Baltic region. It's not likely, but you know, the Turks shot down a Russian aircraft that uh, was flying out of Syria uh, a few years ago. And, and this generation of Russian pilots does not impress me with their discipline, um, I mean, we've always had you know pilots buzzing, and I mean that that went on throughout the Cold War, but now it seems that there's a uh, more of a is it reckless or um, ballsy. Yeah, I mean it's just not as the uh, chance for something bad. Happen.
0: Reason, yeah,
2: and yeah, I mean you've all seen the videos of those buzzing the cook in the Black Sea, that sort of thing. Yeah. Another area where I think potentially um, spillover, if the Russians are doing these amphibious operations in the Black Sea, in the, in the Sea of Azov, which I expect them to do, they're going to put a big giant red circle around this in the Black Sea and in international water declaring, notice to mariners, stay out. We're doing live fire training. Okay. Now, um, and then, and they're going to expect uh, us to not go in there. Well, you, you kind of have to challenge that. In, in international water. Same thing with uh, with aircraft that are operating, that are launching strikes into Ukraine. I mean, they're going to be out in international airspace at times. And of course, we're going to have uh river joint and other uh, air reconnaissance aircraft watching, drones watching. So here's the potential for um, Russian and U.S. or NATO forces uh, getting in proximity to each other. Uh, it won't be... Our guys are so disciplined, uh, but, they're, but we're not infallible. And I'm sure that commanders will have taken all the right precautions to make sure that we don't inadvertently do something. But I can imagine a Russian pilot uh, getting a little aggressive uh, out there. The last thing where I think there's going to be spillover is cyber. Um, cyber does not recognize international borders. And uh, you remember this uh, wonderful article by Andy Greenberg in Wired Magazine about three years ago about the Nak-Petya, uh cyber attack that was aimed at a Ukrainian tax office or something. And it ended up ricocheting and, and shutting down businesses worldwide. And And Marisk was shut down for like six weeks and they weren't even the target. So um, I think uh, because I'm sure that cyber will be a significant part of whatever the Russians do, it already is, you can almost be certain there's going to be um, spillover, collateral yeah. damage.
0: On the point that you're just finishing up on, in terms of kind of potential scenarios for what a, a Russian escalation might look like, I know there's lots of different plausible scenarios uh, for how this might unfold if it happens. But can you tell me how you, what you think some of the kind of leading contenders are? I mean, if you know when you think about what is most likely in terms of Russian steps out of the gates, what do you what do you think? Knowing we, you know, none of us knows for sure, but
2: so uh, you know, we're not dealing with Boy Scouts here. I mean, they, these, they are going to be brutal. Uh, they will use cyber. They don't care how many lives it ruins or how, how much damage it causes to infrastructure. That's important for people. Uh, they're not going after just military targets. They're going to wreck transportation networks and, and, uh, cause as much disruption as they can. So, um, it's going to be brutal in a, in a cyber sense, but also I would anticipate, uh, that, um, sabotage uh, Russian Spetsnaz. If this is going to happen, they're probably already in places where they could uh, attempt to destroy uh, ammunition storage sites, uh, transportation nodes, things that would enable Ukrainian forces to to react. Um, I would imagine, I mean, if I was the Russian commander, I think one of my top targets would be the um, uh, Ukrainian anti-ship shore-based uh, anti-ship systems that could pose a threat to Russian uh, vessels. Uh, those would be targeted early on, I imagine. I don't expect missiles and aircraft going after Kiev, for example, um, cyber for sure, but not destruction uh, because I just uh, have a sense that it's gonna be a, they wanna keep it at a lower level uh, below some perceived threshold where Some of our allies would say, come on, are we really going to invoke sanctions like you have never seen before just because they took a little bit of marshland in the Dnieper Delta or Snake Island or things like that? So I think that also argues for a lower level or more limited type operations. But they'll emanate out of Crimea. Crimea gives them a, a wonderful bridgehead. And of course, there is so much more Russian capability in Donbass than is, I think, publicly accepted.
0: Can I ask you really quick? I know Jim has a question, too. Do you think that that kind of lower level or on the lower end of the spectrum that you just described is going to be sufficient to achieve their objectives? So you hear others argue, right, that in order to either change the Ukrainian constitution and have autonomy delegated so that Russia gets a veto over foreign policy and to try to have any shot at compelling Kiev or you know, NATO to close the door that they're gonna have to have a commanding military position, they'll have to destabilize the government. So those things I think would augur or would suggest that there would be something much more significant, kind of more at the higher end where you could have forces encircling Kiev. Um, so, I, and yeah. how do you think about that?
2: Well, th- those are very valid arguments. Uh, and, and I would not rule out that there would be a giant, you know, big red arrows like we've seen in some newspapers and uh, others uh, commenting on this. And certainly, they put the things in place to be able to do that. So, that's there. Um, but that's also very, very difficult to sustain. Um, 120,000 soldiers. All right, that that would barely fill up uh, Michigan Stadium. Okay, I mean you, the numbers when you think put the numbers in some sort of context, and of course that includes all kinds of truck drivers and logisticians, and and to just all along Ukraine's border, it, it starts to kind of thin out a little bit. Of course, their long-range rocket and missile capability and long-range artillery and other things that could, that'll be very effective. That's a different story. Um, but I, I think also the Ukrainian armed forces, this is not 2014. There is an experienced force, it's been mostly static for the past several years, but, uh, my sense is that there is a determination that was not there in 2014 and within the civilian population. So, uh, I think the Kremlin is going to be very cautious about uh, having too many casualties of their own. Now, uh, do they achieve their aim? Can Putin say, look, we did it. I was right. Uh, that means deterrence failed. If he, if he launches an attack, that means deterrence failed. And he's demonstrated that he can go and do whatever he wants to do and that NATO and our other partners can't stop that especially if he is confident that not everybody will be on board with these bone crushing uh, sanctions and and other things afterwards. Um, I think that uh, I I would not rule out any other type activities though that they would do uh, that would uh, destabilize the government. I mean, you don't have to launch rockets into Kyiv to destabilize the government. I mean, I would not rule out assassinations. I mean, does that to his own people, um so uh, i would not rule out that they would do things like that um or seek to replace people um i think ukrainians are alive to all these possibilities
1: um i know we're almost out of time you've got to move on to other things um i'm sure another interview somewhere but um but my my question for you is is this take go back to the u.s military side and think about uh, you know, the courses of action that the Biden was presented with from uh, the Pentagon, um, they've, he's chosen a couple, which was, um, you know, let's get the 8,500 and, and, you know, increase their readiness a bit um they've four deployed uh some some additional F15Es you know to the air policing uh, the truman was held back you know the, the carrier strike group was held back from going to the gulf and they're now going to be doing the exercise off of norway so so we've 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 put now a, a military footprint down um uh and uh and so what would be the next course of action what would you know i mean this is this is a, a down payment you know, uh, on the military side. Um, and then certainly the next uh, courses of action being presented will be reflective of what's happening at the time. Maybe he, uh, Putin will have invaded, maybe not. Uh, maybe they're, they they need to ratchet it up a little bit more. Um, we've kind of done the easy low hanging fruit bit, which is, you know, uh, supplementing uh, the air policing and, and having the Truman sailing around. Um, what what else would you think the administration might do to ratchet up a little bit more the military side? I mean, let's, let's assume that that we haven't had the invasion yet, but we want to crank up the pressure a little bit more. What other military moves would do that, do you think? 173rd launching into that, dropping into- uh, Well, actually, was,
2: you know, back uh, when you were uh, in the department, and uh, Secretary Carter used to talk about a uh, horizontal escalation. Right. Uh, this is what uh, this is what I really would like to see. Um, a blockade of their port in Tartus in Syria. Um, uh, doing something in Georgia. Uh, you know, a, a deployment for an exercise uh, in Georgia. Uh, where we really, really are missing not having a good relationship with our Turkish ally. Um, I mean, Russia violates Montreux Convention uh, all the time with their submarines uh, because, on Article Twelve, I think of Montreux, a submarine can move through the straits, uh, leave the Black Sea and move through the straits only if it's going for maintenance somewhere. Well, these uh, sons of guns, they they go out and they do operations in the Med and elsewhere for months before they show up for for maintenance. So, uh, Turkey, I think, if Turkey was confident in their American ally, they would they would start squeezing the Russians, say, sorry, uh, no submarines are going to be allowed for a period of time. You know, start calling them out, start making it difficult, make the Russians have to deal with another problem instead of we're all sitting around worrying like, oh, hell, where are they going to attack? You right.
1: know,
2: where, how, can, how can we stretch them uh, somewhere in the Arctic? I mean, doing some other things that make it challenging, uh, for them, give them some problems to worry about. That's And of course, that means we really need a strategy for the Black Sea region. and We we just don't have that.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to abuse my prerogative just and try to slide in one more question. And we're taking you all over the board, but just so great to have you as a base of knowledge. So the the Russia's moves uh, and deployment of um, forces into Belarus was really seen as a game changer, I think, and was like really signaled, I think, to the administration that where things are moving in a very concerning direction. Can you just explain why what what is so significant about Russian forces moving into Belarus and the upcoming exercises? What why is that such an important signal? And what and what does it give Russia in this case? Well,
2: there's, there's three things that worry me about this. Uh number 1, uh I, I always thought that uh, Lukashenko was, uh, his shelf life was going to expire at some point. I mean, they're going to replace, the Russians are going to replace him when he no longer serves a real purpose. And I think they've already got his replacement picked out and they're ready to, so they're ready to do the Anschluss here with Belarus. Uh, That seems to be kind of in place. And so having all these troops, uh, capabilities there for an exercise um, would facilitate that. And of course, they know that nobody in Europe will shed a single tear at the departure of President Lukashenko. So that's almost, that's, that's one they could probably even get away with um, without too much blowback, um, if it were happening any other time. The, the second thing of course is, um, even though President Lukashenko would never be confused with Thomas Jefferson, at least for a period of time, he did not allow Russian ground forces to be in Belarus, not, not in any significant way. And so it looked like he was trying to maintain some independence, the good thing there was that meant there were no Russian troops in Belarus um, right there near the famous Suwalki Corridor. That Now, if you've got Russian troops on the ground that are living in Belarus, the Suwalki Corridor starts to look a lot more vulnerable, and that's why our
1: uh,
2: Lithuanian, Latvian, and Estonian allies are very concerned to see this. And then the, the third thing, of course, this makes the, the problem a little bit more difficult for uh, Ukraine. Now they've got to worry about Russian forces that could, it's not ideal, but could in fact um, uh, threaten the Western end of Ukraine. And, and that really stretches Ukrainian, not just their forces, but their their ability to observe and figure out what's happening.
0: Yeah. Oh, this has been so helpful. I mean, I guess you could imagine, I mean, it's not, Entirely implausible, like as you're saying, if they're putting their ground forces into Belarus and now you're stretching all the way from Belarus and all through Eastern Ukraine, then Putin has essentially kind of returned control over these historically over this historic Slavic heartland. And I mean, I think that probably at the high end of the spectrum, but that really would give Putin quite a lot um, and would be a real game changer. It's and I I don't think it's entirely implausible that we could be looking at something like that.
1: Yeah, well,
2: I think the, for him, the end game has always been number one: restore as much of the Russian Empire as possible. Uh, you know, for his legacy, he wants to be the guy that got this back um, and stretching from Belarus to Georgia. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's what this is about. And then, of course, his other objective is to make sure that um, he uh, doesn't end up being drugged through uh, Red Square like, you know, Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein or something like that. I mean, I, I think his his uh, preservation against the color revolution is in the front of his mind all day long, yeah. every day. Um, I would I would ask y'all, if you let me have one minute. Please. Well, like I say, I was in Berlin. Of course, our German allies are, are always saying, and I understand it like, come on, we've we, there's got to be a diplomatic solution somehow. Yes, you have to back up diplomacy with strength, but... What can we offer that doesn't betray everything we care about? And uh, and so I, I've been thinking hard, like so many people there in Washington and certainly Secretary Blinken, what what can you offer that doesn't betray any of the stuff we care about? Doesn't give away anything, uh, whether we're talking about open door policy for NATO, troops in, in former Soviet republics or Warsaw Pact countries, on and on and on. Uh, but they, they talk about transparency. No, they don't. They already have all the transparency of us that they want, and they never want to give up for themselves. But we can say, okay, uh, let's take what we already have. This is one of three things. Let's take what we already have, put it on steroids, and invite them to come in and see all that we do. Uh, you will remember during the Cold War, they used to have these things called the Soviet Military Liaison Mission, Um uh, of course, the troops called it smellum S-M-L-M. Um, that's, uh, they drove around during reforging. They could watch everything we were doing. I thought it was great. And I've had Russian inspectors crawling through our barracks in Vilsack, um, watching our training in Hohenfels. I loved it I, because then they can see like, oh, shit, these guys are they're good. And so let's, let's double down on that and, and make a big announcement about uh, transparency to alleviate fear. And this, I think, uh, many of our European allies would would say, "Okay, this, you know, we're addressing one of the fake concerns." The second one is uh, guarantee of the borders. Uh, I guarantee Lithuania is not going to invade Russia. I guarantee Estonia is not going to invade Russia. Uh, why not have the thirty nations of NATO that touch only six percent of Russia's frontier? Um, we guarantee we're not going to invade Russia, make a big deal about it. And of course, people would say, well, that's ridiculous because we never were. Of course we're not. But that 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 puts the Russians on their heels because they're complaining they're so concerned that they might, the threat from NATO, all right, good, well, we'll, we'll all sign we promise never to invade Russia.
0: Yeah, and it Uh, undermines one of his key narratives, which is like the besieged Russia mentality, we're under attack, the West wants to keep us down. We
2: didn't didn't do it since the founding of NATO, and and after the fall of the wall and the break of the Soviet Union, when they were at their weakest, we didn't set one foot inside Russian sovereign territory in in any sort of offensive way. So it's a completely false narrative, um, but uh, uh, that's the... um, I just bought us five more minutes. Um, um, That's the false narrative that that it's necessary to address
1: to make sure we keep our European allies on board. I I would imagine that kind of thing is in these letters uh, that we've now gone back with in writing and Offering. I mean, there's, you know, there's this is stuff we've done during the Cold War, these confidence building measures, Vienna document. uh, There's all kinds of of transparency and uh, uh, and then this type of thing that's out there. uh, And uh, and, I mean, the NATO Russia Founding Act, we also said we won't, uh, you know, we won't have anything larger than, I think, a brigade and et cetera, et cetera. It's not like we haven't done this before. If you sweep it all up together, restate a lot of it. Uh, you know, and um, this is, and it takes away, it takes away these arguments that he puts this, this you know, these, these provocations, it takes these away, if we're willing to to put that out. I, I do wish we had made public uh, though that letter, so that everybody sees what we're offering along these lines. Uh, I mean, I'd hate for a Russian uh, variation to be put out, where they say, this is what the Americans said, and we didn't say that at all. But uh, anyway, I, I agree with you. I think there's, this 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 isn't I knew, new to us, putting something like this together.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, they're all important points, but I think the problem is it doesn't seem to be the conversation that Putin wants to have, right? And that's just what it comes down to. And so we, I mean, to your point, Ben, I mean, this administration has tried admirably to pursue diplomacy, to find these solutions. They didn't dismiss Russia's demands. They've taken things out of there that they thought would be in our interest to talk about. But it, it, it's not the conversation that Russia wants to have, apparently, and so that's that's right. the the stalemate, the conundrum, the problem.
2: Yeah, well, that's uh, you, I agree with you 100. The, the Russians absolutely have no interest in legitimate negotiation and finding some sort of uh, equilibrium. That's that's never been their uh, objective. It's always been about how do we get advantage. They'll they'll negotiate forever. Until they get advantage, uh, and I think what's going on now, you know, they've got all of these capabilities deployed in and around Ukraine, and it's growing here over the next several days, uh, because they think we're going to crack. They they think at some point, surely Germany or, or Italy or somebody will say, for the love of God, yes, let's don't do, let's promise not to ever let Ukraine join, so we can reduce this horrible risk of a conflict. That's what the Kremlin's counting on, and I think if we do that, then that uh, there's so many bad outcomes for the Biden administration, for NATO, for uh, and most importantly, stability and security in Europe, because, you know, when you feed that bear, then, then he, he comes back for more. He never stops. And, and I think this is, uh, this is a time uh, for, for us and for the, our German allies to uh, really stand up.
0: Yeah, the ripple effects will be tremendous if it happens. And, you know, right. I mean, one thing, maybe we'll have you back another time. I'd love to talk with you about then what does it mean for kind of our force posture globally? And what do we need to do in Europe? How does it affect what we want to do in the Indo-Pacific? But that's right. another conversation. I I know we, we're, we've pushed you to the end of your time here. Well,
2: that, what, your point, though, it does highlight the fact that we don't get to pick our threats. I mean, yeah. well, of course, we'll make priorities, but it's we've never been where we could say, okay, this horrible phrase, let's park Russia so we can focus on China. The United States depends on Europe so much economically, diplomatically, as well as militarily. Uh, We don't get to choose. We're not going to deal with this. So we we have to be able to do both. Guys, thanks. I really appreciate the privilege and it's fun. Uh, I love your show.
0: Thank you for joining us. We'll do it again soon.